I've been thinking more about the history of Mexico, of Spain, of colonization in general, and about Mao. I've read a lot about Mao's life. I remember I met one of my friends at my master's program, and he told me, he's a really smart guy, I really respect him, and he said, you know, what do you know about Mao? Because I'm not going to start reading about him until I know I can dive really deep. I really appreciate that, about how when this guy wants to tackle a historical period, he tackles it with all that he has. And that made me kind of tackle Mao with all that I had. I read The Private Life of Chairman Mao. I read Kissinger's Mao. I read what Mao wrote, his poetry, the history, John Fairbank, what he wrote about Mao, what Chinese authors have write about Mao. I talked to regular Chinese people who had lived through Mao's period. And I feel like I learned a lot. And at this point now, I am doing that version of a deep dive on Mexican history. I've learned probably very little about what actually is the entire story. And here today, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I've learned, how I see it, and kind of tell you what I've learned in a story. It's kind of a comparative history, and at times I'll get off on tangents and talk about Mao and about China and about Spain and about Portugal and about the United States, about England. And it's a story. It's a long story. But if you want to tune in and you want to hang out, here it is. We're starting with the Opium War. So thanks for tuning in. The place that is now Mexico has had an interesting relationship with the outside world, with foreign powers showing up at different periods of time to take to lay claim to the resources, to the people, to the place. And it happens a lot when you can think about it from when the Spanish actually show up to when they create and, and implement their colony and their image to when they leave, when the U.S. shows up, when the French show up, all of these different types of foreign powers and what they actually want remind me a lot, and we're going to start here, with the Opium Wars. So here's what the English had to say. Yo, guys, we got to start paying you in something else. And China's like, oh, well, what are you going to pay us in? And they're like, well, we have this sweet colony in India, and they produce all this opium... Maybe we could use that. China's is like, well, no, please don't do that. And Britain's like, well, yeah, what are you going to do about it? So the British start trading opium with China because they're upset that they're not they're losing their silver. They stop spending silver. They start trading with opium. These Chinese pirates that we talked about in the Ming Dynasty lived in the same place, and it's generally accepted that these people in southern China will do business with anybody. They don't ask questions. They're not particularly loyal to the government that's actually super far away. Think about it like this. A Chinese merchant is in the equivalent of San Diego, and the government is in, in, in Washington, and they got to take a cart, a horse cart, over the Rocky Mountains to go and tell this guy what to do. So he does, essentially does what he wants. So these merchants in southern China accept the opium from the British and sell it into China, and now Qing China has a huge opium problem. But people say that it just put China to sleep for 100 years. I don't know if it was actually the opium or if it was the political fallout of what actually happened, but what happened was also terrible for China. And it was because they didn't know anything about the outside world. 
So what happens is the British send an ambassador to talk with the emperor with a letter from, I think it was Her Majesty the Queen. It might have been the king. Who knows? It's all the same to me. They come with a letter from the English monarch, and the emperor essentially says, I don't recognize the English monarch as my equal. I will not speak to you. I'm the son of heaven. Get out of here. I'm not going to meet with you. So the British come back and take their warships, which are steam-powered by now, up the river in China and destroy all of their cities. They eventually make it all the way to Beijing, destroy China one time, they make a peace agreement. China breaks the peace agreement because Britain is still selling opium. This is actually how the British get Hong Kong and hold on to Hong Kong. And then they do it again, like uh, five, six, seven years later. They make another treaty. And essentially, they let all the other colonial powers in on it, and they start carving up China. So Mao is living in that generation. He was born only 30, 40 years after that. So his parents, his grandparents saw that. They knew about it. They were living with the effects of it. China had to pay all types of uh, indemnity to these Western countries who had invaded them. So he knew what was going on. But that's the China that he grew up in. That's what he knew, and it paints a picture of exactly what had happened to the Mexicans over their history. So the Boxer Rebellion happens, a French diplomat is killed, and the Americans, the Russians, I should say the United States, the North Americans, you can say whatever, the United States, the Russians, the French, the British— a bunch of other countries linked up and in retaliation for what happened to this French diplomat and because the Chinese weren't holding up their end of this forced bargain from some period of time, invaded China, went into Beijing, burned down this crazy, um, amazing garden, not the Forbidden City, but next to it, the Summer Palace, set it on fire, and Chinese people still remember it to this day. Mao is kind of raised in this system. He sees what's going on. And in the 1920s, which is five, ten years after this, he joins the Communist Party. And he kind of moves up through the ranks. Shortly, really shortly after that, the Japanese invade. He fights a guerrilla war against the Japanese. He starts to get to a point where he might be able to throw them out, but he's losing against the nationalist government, Chiang Kai-shek. You know, formulates this plan to make Chiang Kai-shek look bad, but also to actually kick out the Japanese because the nationalist government didn't want to fight the Japanese. They wanted to defeat Mao first. Mao runs this kind of public affairs campaign to make it, the nationalists look bad. The nationalists give in. They work with the communists to drive out the Japanese. The Americans actually give some support to the communists to drive out the Japanese. They do so. The Americans kind of pull out but remain supporting the nationalists a little bit. From 1945 to 1949, the communists and the nationalists duke it out. A lot of people say the nationalists lost because they were corrupt. Everybody says that about the loser. In any event, they lost. The American 7th Fleet took all of the nationalist army to the island of Taiwan. They've been there ever since. Wash your hands if it. That's history. And Mao is kind of left to build up his country 
the way that he sees fit. And here's the big difference, and I'll skip over a lot of Mexican history, but I'll go back and, and brush it up. The fundamental issue that we're trying to get at today is the lack of central control in Mexican politics that exists in China. But it's hard to say that it has always existed that way in Mexico unless you go back and say that Mexico needs an Aztec system, right? Because the, possibly the Aztecs had been there for just as long as the Chinese, who knows? Maybe they were, they probably were. I don't know the answer to that question. But it seems really easy and natural for the Chinese system of governance to set up a central leader like Mao. And essentially he was just the first emperor of in, since the interregnum, right? There, there was a guy who actually tried to be the emperor in the early 1910s, I think the late 1910s, up until the 1920s, shot that guy. Chiang Kai-shek didn't have it. Other people tried. But Mao was really the first one to actually set himself up as the emperor again. And that's what he was. Fast forwarding through the colonial period where the Spaniards have successfully conquered Mexico, but they're having problems, the Yucatan, kind of once independence, there's nobody living in modern-day Texas and Arizona, New Mexico, and California besides the Apache and the Comanche, who are really dangerous and really like to kill Spaniards. They had trouble pacifying and, and unionizing the southern states of Oaxaca, Chiapas, even Guatemala, which was a part, kind of, of the conquest. The Spanish had a tough time. What was going on in Mexico at the time was central rule in a way, right? Because you do have the Spanish crown who's nominally in charge. You actually do have Hernan Cortez who's on the throne. But it's not central control from home rule. It's not like, it's kind of like uh, Genghis Khan being the emperor of China, which he was, right? Which was weird because he wasn't Chinese. But he became really Chinese because it was a civilizational thing. And my question here is, what does it really mean to be Mexican? And that's a tough question that I really don't know the answer to that I'm kind of searching to hope and find out. One of the things that really shocked me in the beginning was when I learned the story of Montezuma, I thought to myself, why do they keep speaking Spanish? What an embarrassment. If that would happen to your country, just wiped out the entire culture, killed everybody. And some people say that there was 26 million people living there and only two or three million people survived the entire ordeal. But now to be Mexican, if you were to ask people, and you, it, maybe if you were even to ask Mexicans what it means to be Mexican, a lot of them would point to the religion and say that it, maybe they're Catholics, who knows? But the, the linguistic issue is something that I thought about that thought, man, I cannot imagine what it would be like if someone absolutely wiped out your culture. But then I thought to myself, how are cultures even made? What are they made out of? In any event, these type of huge civilizational changes where you have massive amounts, millions of people dying, crazy amounts of human suffering, and crazy amounts of civilizational grinding as like a continental drift would grind against each other and change 
and create mountains by pushing it up. This type of big thinking, when you have to think about what it means when all this happens, is the kind of thinker that Mao Zedong was. He wrote poetry. There's this, this really interesting idea in Chinese history of the exiled official. I don't know what other people in history do when they get exiled from their country. I do know that the Romans became Stoics or really philosophical and wrote poetry. Some people killed themselves. But the classic thing to do, even now, when you're exiled in China, you're always exiled internally because China's huge, but you're always exiled internally to some mountain place, and you either start painting or writing poetry, or both. Mao never went to college. He was a librarian at Peking University, which is like the best university in China. And he was, he was inevitably an intellectual. He read all the time, but he also wrote poetry. And some of the poetry that he wrote and talked about how Chinese history had waited a thousand years for him to show up and to be this central ruler of China. And it brings me back to this idea that there were some people in Mexican history who saw this coming. Maybe you think of Santa Ana, you think of Porfirio Diaz, you might think of Benito Juarez. And you wonder if what was going through their mind when they were deciding between federalism and central control. And what are the factors at play that are constraining them? from creating the society that they want to create. I'll go ahead and fast forward to this really interesting period of Mexican history that I just can't get away from at this point. I'm, I'm so entrenched in it, and it ends at the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which was absolutely devastating for Mexico in 1848 when the U.S. government invaded and, and went to Mexico City, tore the place to the ground, and took by treaty... California, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, Wyoming, Texas, and some parts of some other places in the United States. Essentially, I had no idea that had happened. But part of the problem that brought it about was that the Mexicans could not figure out how to govern themselves. And there was so much infighting that everybody was at each other's throats and it was really easy for foreign powers to go ahead and do that. So, so leading up to this period, you have this leader called Santa Ana, who is influential in Mexican politics. Leading up to this period, there's a lot of changes of hands, of power. The conservatives are fighting the liberals. The liberals want to take the Catholic Church out of Mexico. The conservatives want to keep it. The liberals want to kick out all Spanish and people of Spanish descent from Mexico. The conservatives are those people. And this kind of divide exists, which is a racial and a religious and a class divide, probably also a geographic divide in Mexico, and the United States kind of takes advantage of it by what's happening in Texas. So in Texas, the Mexicans kind of realized that their colonies, well, excuse me, that their state of Mexico wasn't actually producing that much, and it was at real risk because they opened it up to foreign settlement to keep out the Indian tribes who were raiding Mexican missions in the north of Mexico. So they opened it up to Anglo-American settlement, which is what they called it. And these Anglo-Americans showed up to Texas. They were obviously Protestants. They said they preferred Catholics, but they didn't care. They weren't Catholics. They went there. They stayed. The Mexicans tried to kick them out. It didn't work. More of them came. 
these people started openly fighting against the Mexicans. And then Polk and Zach Taylor and all these different people in American history, some people say they wanted to take Texas to make it a slave state. For whatever reason, the Americans decided, the North Americans, the United States decided that they wanted this piece of land. They wanted Texas. They went to war against Mexico to get Texas and decided while they were at it, they would march all the way to San Diego up into San Francisco and take all of California and everything in between. And they were eventually successful. It took them going down into Mexico City through Veracruz and fighting their way through, just like the Spanish had. A lot of these people in the army actually had a book that Hernan Cortez wrote about how he actually conquered Mexico. Actually, Hernan Cortez didn't write it, but it was about his writings. Somebody else wrote it, but it was called The Conquest of Mexico. And the United States is successful. They win the war. They exact a really terrible treaty on Mexico for the Mexicans and uh, secured the United States' place in history as a huge continental power with a huge Pacific coast, a huge Atlantic coast, and an essentially pacified, really weakened neighbor. But for the United States, it, it, it exemplified or amplified this problem of slavery, right? Because you had all these people in the North, you had people like Henry David Thoreau who were upset that all of these states had been taken by force of arms nonetheless, and that they had been taken by a president who owned slaves for people who owned slaves in places like Texas, and kind of fueled the fire on this ongoing debate that eventually led to the American Civil War. Mexican politics after this period of time kind of continues to putter along in its debate between federalism and central control and can't really come to an agreement about everything. You have these armed bandits that are running around the country, all these foreign travelers or journalists or business people or government officials who are working there from France, United States, from Britain, from Russia, all over the place are writing about how dangerous it is to ride on the highways in Mexico at the very time when they're trying to attract foreign direct investment. It's obviously pretty hard to do that when you get bad publicity. It probably was actually that bad who knows? But in any event, Mexico is really struggling along through this period in history. At this point also, there's a guy in charge in France called Napoleon III. This is exactly the time, mind you, of the Opium Wars, of the time that we talked about earlier when China is being kind of dissected by foreign powers in a similar way to the way that Mexico is about to be dissected by foreign powers during the American Civil War. So what happened was the in Paris, they had a, a king again called Napoleon III, which is kind of crazy. It's the grandson of Napoleon Bonaparte. He sees that the United States is at a real point where it's in a tough spot. He also thinks that the Confederates are going to win, which I'm not really sure just exactly how that factored into his calculus, but he assumed that the Confederates were going to win, that the Americans couldn't intervene, and that he was going to place Maximilian, who was an Austrian prince who should have been the emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire because of this weird reason, because his, his brother was the rightful heir, but his brother had a son, and then that son died, and no one really knew... And Maximilian had to write him a letter and say that he renounced his claim to the throne. No one really knows how that son died. Maybe Maximilian's people did it. Nobody knows. 
Maybe some people know. Historians probably know. I'm not a historian. Maximilian, in any event, is taken on this really weird kind of journey, which kind of shows you that in some ways, history kind of acts as this force that drags you along. It's like history is this gravitational force where things just kind of orbit around it until they're pulled into it at a certain point. And maybe Maximilian was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Anyway, this is what happened to him. Napoleon III says, hey, man, I want you to be the emperor of Mexico. And I'm going to give you a huge army of 27,000 dudes, French dudes, to go take it. And I don't know whether or not Maximilian was like, okay, sweet, I'd love to do that. Or, uh, do you guys have benefits? Like, I, I don't know what he asked, okay? In any event, Maximilian I, sometime in the late 1850s, goes to Mexico because the French army is doing well. I should probably say that the French army shows up to Veracruz with 27,000 people, like 100 ships, they bomb Veracruz to the ground, just like the Americans did. Robert E. Lee's the one who actually did it. Robert E. Lee at the time was destroying the United States alongside the Union generals who were doing the same. Anyway, the last time that someone had destroyed Veracruz was Robert E. Lee. Now the French are doing it. So the French are doing it. They make their way into Veracruz. They get to the city in between Mexico City and Veracruz, which is Puebla. And the Mexicans essentially hold back the French, and it was the 5th of May, and that's why we have Cinco de Mayo. What they don't tell you is that after Cinco de Mayo, the Mexicans were beaten, and the French pushed on and ended up taking Mexico City. Again, I mean, you look at this, this century of humiliation, and you can't help to think that that's exactly what was happening to China at, the, at the, that time. And you wonder if there's a leader that's going to come out of this, or if there was a Mexican leader that I probably just don't know about who did come out of this and do what Mao did. But maybe not. In any event, I do like to think about the alternative of what would have happened if Maximilian's reign would have worked, but he actually was there for a while. At this time, there's a guy called Benito Juarez, who is, you know, everything's named after him in Mexico, and he's the liberal leader who's running the rebellion. And essentially, conservatives want Maximilian to be in charge. Juarez is obviously against the conservatives and against Maximilian, who's this foreign ruler, who says the emperor, right? You can only imagine how upset he is about that. But anyway, Maximilian ends up showing up and being not too shabby of a ruler by my account of what a good ruler probably was and could be. The other thing is, you know, he was there for a few years, and people started being educated in French. They started to have nice operas. The style changed. They made the roads bigger. They started to make it look like Paris. And part of me wanted to think, man, I know it sounds bad, and it's not something nice to think about, but what would happen if Maximilian would have stayed? What would Mexico look like today if Maximilian was the central control? If he was the emperor that the Spanish could never be because he was actually there on the ground? What if he was the Pedro II of Brazil in Mexico? I thought about that. And from a U.S. perspective, I thought to myself, no, 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 that wouldn't have been good for us. Because they would have been really powerful. And we want to see a weak Mexico. That's what I thought. 
So I wondered. But I don't have to worry about that because that's not what happened. What ended up happening is the Americans, the North Americans, the United States people, the Estado Unidense, the Union wins. All of a sudden, Napoleon III is like, oh, God, that's that's not what I was planning on. And Otto von Bismarck in Prussia, or whatever you call Germany at that time, all of a sudden, he looks pretty powerful. He's trying to go out and get some colonies for himself in Africa, and he's beating on the door of the French. They ended up fighting a war. For some reason, he's in Versailles a few years later. Anyway, Napoleon III had reason to believe that he was in trouble. He did not have the political capital or maybe even the monetary capital to have a huge failure on his hands in Mexico for some intervention that he you know didn't have much to gain from anyway so i'm sure at this point maximilian the 1st is probably pretty worried and it only is going to get worse for him because Anyway, Juarez and the liberals have to retreat to the north of Mexico because they're kind of getting spanked by the conservatives and the French. So this French army is pretty good. They're whipping the Mexican liberal armies. And Maximilian is implementing all these liberal laws. He's essentially not giving the Catholic Church what was taken from them by the liberals. So essentially... They, the Catholic Church owned more than 50% of all property in Mexico. The liberals took it away from them. Maximilian didn't give it back. Maximilian guaranteed some form of male suffrage or something like that. He f- made the education system universal. He implemented some better schools. He commissioned a lot of art. He was doing whatever he could to appease the liberals, and it wasn't working. At the worst time that it could have happened, Napoleon III decides that he wants to take all 28,000 troops out of Mexico. And you can imagine that Maximilian at this point is like, dude, please don't do that. The original agreement was to keep Mexican troops, or excuse me, French troops there until 1873, I think. And it's nowhere near that point. It's like 1865 or something like that. Maybe it's 1864. Again, the U.S. Civil War had just ended. They're starting to muster up their forces. I think the United States actually put 42,000 men on the Texas border to kind of show the French that they meant business. This is U.S. territory in the Monroe sense of the word. Don't mess with it. And Napoleon III speeds up the withdrawal. He says that by this October, we're going to take out 7,000. And then by August, we're going to take out another 7,000. And then by the next October after that, we're going to take out the rest. Maximilian's like, please don't do that. Then Then it really starts to look bad. And Napoleon says, okay, we're taking out all of the troops now. And Maximilian's like, dude, dang it. People come to him, ambassadors of different countries, foreign dignitaries, famous people, movie stars. Everybody shows up to Maximilian's court, and he says, they're telling him, like, dude, I know that you probably like Mexico. You want to be the emperor. You're probably worried about what's going to happen to you if you go home. People might think that you're trying to take the Austro-Hungarian Empire. You maybe don't want to be ashamed. You thought that you loved the Mexican people. You thought they loved you. They don't. Don't worry about it. Your life is more important. Just go home. 
And Maximilian thinks about it for a couple of weeks and decides, no, I'm going to stay. Bad decision. So he stays. He stays, and I think he's surrounded. He only has a few thousand troops around him. He's surrounded by these liberal forces. Benito Juarez captures him, puts him and three other people on trial. I think like the leading generals, the two leading generals with him. And after much deliberation on Benito Juarez's part, he elects to execute the emperor, the pretender, he says, Maximilian. <clears throat> now, this is a, a crazy point in history because obviously kings have been killed before, and you got to imagine that Juarez is thinking, you know, the French people have killed their kings before. Why don't I just kill this guy who was sent by the French? Again, I'm thinking here of Mao. And at this point, I'm thinking of Mao as the closest character that he is in this story to anything, which is Benito Juarez. And what Benito Juarez was doing was he broke the church, took all of their property, and wanted to set up a state of farmers who were loyal to the state because they were given their land by the state. And he wanted to set up this agricultural paradise that would essentially lead to home rule Mexico for the Mexicans, get all these foreigners out. And it sounds a lot like Mao in this sense, too. And his ruthlessness as a military mind also makes me think about Mao. And I, I tend to think that Mao would have done the same thing in this case. One tends to think also about the long march, about Mao kind of crossing what seems to be like the Alps. I forget what mountain range he was crossing. Like everybody died. There's all these crazy paintings of him doing it. But I tend to think that he would also have killed Maximilian. I think I forgot to mention how all of this started, how the French actually showed up and why it pertains to Mao and China. Because at the beginning, it was the Spanish and the British and the French together who showed up to Veracruz because the Mexicans had failed to pay these debts that the foreign powers said that Mexico paid. They said that during all of their problems in the interbellum and also before that, that citizens of their country had been robbed, their property had been stolen, they hadn't been reimbursed, that the Mexicans wouldn't pay back international loans, and therefore these three foreign countries were going to invade. Now, when the French brought Maximilian to be the emperor, the Brits and the, Fr and the Spanish said, like, we can't be a part of this, we're leaving. <clears throat> and they did. But it reminds me of the Opium Wars and the Boxer Rebellion, and what is kind of what Mao is thinking about when all of this happens to his country, too. In any event, we go back to this story. I think it's 1865, something like that. And Benito Juarez has Maximilian shot. And the last thing Maximilian says, is like, long live Mexico, which seems weird because he's, you know, I don't even know if he spoke Spanish. He probably, I, I really, I think I could look up the answer to that, but I really think that he probably didn't speak Spanish. But what died with him was my idea of how central rule could have been set up in Mexico and what Mexico maybe would have looked like if it were. What Benito Juarez set up in his place was much different. And after Juarez died, you have another one of these caudillos. And what is a caudillo? It's like a regional warlord, which again is exactly the way that China was ruled up until Mao and then after him and in some ways you could probably say that it still is kind of ruled that way but there's regional strongmen 
who have people and armies that are loyal to them, who set up their power base, but once that regional strongman dies, then his power base dies with him. There's there's one guy in Guerrero province who kind of has this. There's also a, a they call him Su uh, Zhuang, the the four handsome generals in China. Zhang Xueliang is one of them, and Mao is a contemporary of this guy. But essentially, in Mexico, you have this problem where you have these regional strongmen who won't allow the country of Mexico to be ruled as one country. In China, you obviously have that, but you have a history of the country being ruled as one country. But anyway, after Maximilian dies, Benito Juarez goes on his reformer's path. He reforms a lot about Mexico. Um, but essentially, it's broken again. And you get all these different constitutions in the history of Mexico. And quite frankly, there's just a lot I don't know about what happens after that. But up to this point, when I look at it, I can't help but to read this history and think about Mao and what happened to him and the ruthlessness with which he decided he wanted to take over the country and what it actually takes, the ruthlessness on behalf of a person or a group of people who decide that they want to take over a place and exactly what they have to do to do it, about what the Aztecs had to do to build their empire cutting people's hearts out and doing all this crazy stuff and subjugating. They had to fight wars every springtime just to show people that they would do something. They'd, they'd go out and kill people in random villages. About what the Spanish had to do to conquer the Aztecs. About what biology did, killing 20 million of them. What the Aztecs must have thought. What it was like for the Spaniards to rule over this Native American population in Mexico for 300 years just to lose them. But what they actually did in building them up, and not building them up, but building them into who they are today with their language and their religion and their culture, what it means to be Mexican, all of these questions kind of come to a head when you look at a, a specific point in 1810 when a guy called Miguel Hidalgo decides that he's had enough of Spanish rule. Essentially, there are some peasants that are in the countryside and the Spanish will not let them grow crops that he knows will save them from famine. And he says, enough of this, okay? We've lived here long enough. He's a Criollo, which means he's of Spanish descent, but he's born in, in, in Mexico. And he leads this rebellion against Spain. People know him as the father of Mexico. And it's, it's really here that you start to be able to answer some of those questions about what it really means. And the national identity is kind of forged, not really in his image, but in his wake, for sure. The Mexicans are successful in getting their independence from Spain. Spain essentially won't allow them the face to be able to say that they won. Essentially, Spain did not make their life very easy after revolution, which is probably normal when a colony declares independence. I'm sure that the British didn't make um, United States life very easy after their revolution. But in any event, life wasn't easy for Mexican society after that. You kind of fast forward, there are some regional rulers 
who are, they're called caudillos, and they're fighting for power amongst each other. Everything is kind of, as the Chinese would say, 天下大乱. It's kind of funny, Mao Zedong used to say, 我喜欢天下大乱. He was talking to his doctor and he said, I like it when all under heaven is in complete chaos. Which again makes me think of Mao when I think of this kind of story of Mexican independence. But if you fast forward a little further, you have the United States who realizes that they can get their eyes on this huge expanse of what was New Spain but is now Mexico. Essentially, Mexico has not the central power to be able to govern this huge expanse of territory. And the Americans at the time realized that a bunch of Anglo-Saxon Protestants moved into Texas as a part of this Spanish and Mexican policy of trying to populate these outer areas. They weren't Catholics. They lied. They weren't holding up their end of the bargain. And when they tried to go in and make them speak Spanish or put more Indian people in there, put more Spanish speakers or more Catholics there, these Anglo-Saxons were pretty upset. They called them Anglo-Americans. They ended up fighting against the Mexicans. At the time, the U.S. president was a slave owner and decided that he wanted, some people say, that he wanted to go and protect the Texans and get Texas and California and Nevada and Arizona, the present day Colorado, these places for the United States. And the Northerners were saying, you know, he's probably doing this because he wants to get more slave territory. And you kind of see how this ends in 1848 and sows the seeds for the United States Civil War. In any event, this war happens because of whatever reason, it sparks a war, and they fight this war. The Mexicans fight valiantly, the Americans fight valiantly. It's a tough and terrible and stupid war. For two years, it goes on. Finally, the U.S. troops go to Mexico City, force the president to resign and to sign a terrible peace treaty, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which gives United, doubles the United States territory and reduces Mexican territory by half. And if Mexico is really at a, a low point here, and they're kind of proceeding until 1862 when the French set up an emperor in Mexico, which is again a low point for the Mexicans. And after all of that had kind of been ironed out, after they had been kicked out and Mexico set up their own system of home rule and the generals are fighting against each other, you have this guy come out called Profidio Diaz. This guy was a dictator for 30 years, and his idea was to build up Mexico economically. He led in a bunch of foreign investors. I think somebody said that 90% of all the assets in Mexico were owned by foreigners, 70% by U.S. And interests. This period of history is called the Porfiriato. Eventually, Porfirio Diaz is exiled to Paris. He's kicked out of the country. A guy called Madero comes in power. And this guy eventually kicks off the Mexican Revolution. And this is kind of where you start to think again about Mao and you realize that this revolution in China that kicked the Qing Dynasty out, the Qing Dynasty out, actually didn't start until the Mexican Revolution started, which didn't happen. It happened before the Russian Revolution started. So 
I'm I'm sure at this point in time in Washington, people are kind of getting scared that there's a communist revolution going on in the South. So at the, the Madero kind of kicks off this period, and you have these three factions that are fighting each other. Madero represents the constitutionalists. In the North, you have a guy called Pancho Villa, who we, as Americans, we all know about. And then in the South, in the state of Morelos, you have Emiliano Zapata. Zap, Zapata. The, his people are called the Zapatistas. Okay? And Pancho Villa and Zapata are like two really powerful warlord generals, kind of like in the Chinese sense you can think about the warlords who owned like Dongbei during the Japanese period. And anyway, these two guys are warlords, and from 1910 to 1920, I think 2 million Mexicans lost their lives in this 10-year completely crazy civil war. Some great music and some great art and some great traditions come out of this. You have women playing a huge role in the fight, and you have Pancho Villa using trains, and you have the United States backing Pancho Villa and then not backing him, and then you have the United States backing the constitutionalists, and then having Emiliano Zapata set up and assassinated. So you have all this crazy stuff that I had no idea that was going on. In 1920, you have relative stability. You have a general who takes over, names himself president, and starts to open up back Mexico for investment starts to implement some of these land reforms, he resigns, he gives a, he puts in place his own successor. That guy does his four years, this other guy comes back, then he's assassinated in 1928. And then in the 1930s, you have another period of crazy stuff going on. You have the Great Depression, you have fascism rising in Europe, and you get this guy called Cardenas. Cardenas comes in, and he is this kind of socialist superhero in Mexico who everybody looks up to. He implemented the land reform that no one would do in the 1940s. He brings in a lot of refugees from Spain and from Germany, a lot of Jewish refugees. And Mexico kind of does something really crazy here by nationalizing the oil companies. Here, I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is absolutely crazy. And I think about what the what Mao's actual relationship was like with Mexico post-revolution in China. It's still something that I don't know much about. But I, I have to think, what is the United States thinking when you have a real legitimate guy just south of you in Mexico who's not only nationalized oil that you need to fight wars and to build up your country after the war is over, but who might also be a communist, I mean, think about that. So Mao uh, has a lot in common with these countries and, and what's going on in Latin America, especially in Mexico. And you can't help but to look at it and see the similarities in the story. Obviously, Mexico goes on and develops. The pre takes over and Mexico swings back to the right. Obviously, China didn't. And the two countries kind of uh, change in different directions. But one thing here on Mexico and Mexico's future is I like to think about, I spent some time in Brazil. You look at the two economies and you have to think that Mexico has such great potential, such great economic potential. Um, but you also look at the art and the culture that came out of all of the struggle 
that happened for Mexicans to find out what it means to be a Mexican. And it was really beneficial for me to take this time to learn about the history and kind of see it through the lens that I see history through, realize my own biases, and come to my own conclusions. And I wonder what you think. And I'd like for you to reach out and let me know what you know about Mexican history, what you know about Chinese history, how this has maybe changed your ideas towards history, and what it means to tell stories. So thanks for tuning in. I know this has been a, a kind of crazy compilation of two comparative stories, but I know that if you've gotten this far, you've bore with it. So let me know how it was, and thanks for tuning in. Peace.